Пусть бегут неуклюже пешеходы по лужам, а вода по асфальту рекой. So, like, who is this kindly crocodile singing to me? It's Crocodile Gena! Yay! It's Crocodile Gena from, uh, from the cartoon of that name, which many might also know as Chivarashka, but that Chivarashka is just another character, so... Прилети вдруг волшебник в голубом вертолете и бесплатно покажет кино. С днем рождения поздравит и, наверное, оставит мне в подарок 500 эскимо. Ах, я играю на гармошке у прохожих на виду. К сожалению, день рождения только раз. Can you give us just a, like two sentences on what he's singing about? Yeah, it's a birthday song. <laughs> and he's singing about, as you, maybe you can tell from the melody, the tragedy that Birthdays only happen once a year. <laughs> right. And this isn't, to be clear, this is like a song that was, I don't know who the composer is, but it was written for this character. It's not like a song that existed before. Yeah. he And it's extremely popular. And to this day, like every kid knows this song. It's a nice song. I don't even understand yeah. what he's saying, it's but I've listened song. to it probably like 10 times now. So. So. Given all that information. Would you like to introduce the podcast? <laughs> sure. This is She's in Russia. I'm Lily. And I'm Smith. Smitty. Chebaroshka. That's me. Smith Chebaroshka Freeman. <laughs> um, and, and what is... And I'm Lily Gena. <laughs> <laughs> and if our audience hasn't guessed yet, what is today's episode about? Wait, I'm definitely Chebaroshka and you're Gena. Yeah, no, that's true. Um... <laughs> Today, yay, we're talking about we're talking about Russian animation in part. We are not going to be able to cover the whole breadth of that topic. But the tale of Russian animation starts long ago, uh, pre-revolution actually, with uh, a couple of freaks, <laughs> like a dancer and an entomologist separately. Um, is that right, entomologist? I don't know if he, he was a biologist, according to Wikipedia. But he had. Okay, but he also had a bunch of yeah. bugs, um, and he used those to meticulously make a stop motion video, uh, beginning with his cockroaches and expanding into the other bug worlds. But yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna go into the entire history of animation. But that was in like what nineteen twelve, yeah, eleven, yeah. But since we don't have that much time today, we're going to focus in on what's really important. Think, think. Think. With Winnie the Pooh, of course. What I said was, is anybody at home? No. Bother. Isn't there anybody here at all? Nobody. Somebody there. Because somebody must have said nobody. Rabbit, isn't that you? No. But isn't that the rabbit's voice? 
I don't think so. It isn't meant to be. Hello, rabbit. Oh, oh, hello, Pooh Bear. Pooh Bear. Uh, 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 what a pleasant surprise. Uh, uh, how about lunch? Oh, thank you, rabbit. And help yourself, Pooh. Uh, would you like condensed milk? Or honey on your bread? Both. Uh, but never mind the bread, please. Just a small helping, if you please. Uh, there you are. Is uh, something wrong? Well, I did mean a little larger small helping. Well, perhaps it'd save time if you took the whole jar. Thank you, Rabbit. So Pooh ate and 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 ate. Until at last he said to Rabbit in a rather sticky voice, I must be going now. Goodbye, Rabbit. No, Smith, not Winnie the Pooh. Winnie Pooh. Oh, sorry. Привет, кролик. Мы случайно шли мимо. Может быть, ты все-таки войдешь? Раз уж ты все равно шел мимо. Ах да. Я говорю, мы как раз шли мимо. Я случайно подумал, они зайти нам кролику. Пух уже начал волноваться, но кролик был очень умный и сам догадался, что пора бы немного подкрепиться. А, much better. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so Winnie Pooh is like the Soviet version, obviously, of Winnie the Pooh, but it's the creation of a wonderful man named Fyodor Hitruk, and he worked for for the like Soviet cartoon, whatever they call that, Union, Soyuz Multfilm, um, as an animator starting in 1937. But yeah, he made like... The the Vinnie Pooh series is three pretty short films. Um, I think in like '69, this scene is from uh, Winnie the Pooh goes on a visit, which is '71, and then the third one, which I think is the longest, a few years later. I mean, yeah, the character Winnie the Pooh has like I mean, at least the voice and like mannerisms are a lot sharper than American Winnie the Pooh, like a lot more kind of matter of fact and like <laughs> you know, like you can hear yeah. that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the the quality of the voice is very different. He's like a man. Yeah, but they're both but they're both dumb and, like, you know, fluffy <laughs> still. Like, it, like, for example, right before that scene starts, when Winnie the Pooh is, like... But in this scene, Winnie the Pooh is together with Piglet um, in the Soviet one. They're, like, knocking, and they go through the same process where, like, Rabbit's like, no one's at home. I just didn't want it to be too long because it's a longer mm -hmm. scene. But, like, Rabbit's like, no one's here, and they're like... But someone must be there because someone must have said no one's here. Like, same thing. So, and, you know, like, you remember that scene in another one where, like, Eeyore is really sad because it's his birthday and everyone forgot. And then Pooh runs back to his house to do something about the birthday. And, like, Piglet is waiting there knocking on the door. And then Pooh starts knocking on his own door. Remember that? I don't remember that. <laughs> Well, anyway, the Soviet Pooh does the same thing So in that scene. So I'm just saying, he's still... And in this scene, it's like... It's, it has the same vibe, except for instead of Pooh coming by himself and, like, eating all of Rabbit's honey, he he's, like, kind of 
he has this relationship with Piglet where he's always kind of teaching him. So like he like makes Piglet choose what uh, topping to have when he's like condensed milk or honey. He's like, do you want condensed milk or honey? And Piglet's like, eh. <laughs> and like, he also washes we'll have his both. face. <laughs> he, yeah, like so Rabbit is like, please like wash your hands. Or he says the washer is over there, which is like this little touch in the Soviet version that the American version doesn't have, like wash your hands. And so they go over to the washer and, and who is just staring at the honey jar but like without looking he's washing piglet's <laughs> face <laughs> but doesn't wash his own hands or anything <laughs> and piglet doesn't say anything oh, is there no christopher robin character um not that i know so of the, is the premise isn't that they're stuffed animals that have come to life i don't remember there being that same like in and out from the book okay. that the american version has you know where you're like going through the book <laughs> and it's like christopher robin stuff <laughs> and woods Oh, you mean the intro, yeah. But I think that there is a narrator in everything. Yeah, there's a narrator in the Soviet one also. But I didn't, like, first of all, there weren't as many made, and um, I didn't watch the last one all the way through, which is the one that's 19 minutes, and I don't know. But I feel like, actually, I was listening to a lecture about this, and it's interesting that, like, when you think about Winnie the Pooh in, in both American and Soviet, like, you, what age do you think they are? Uh, it's It's hard. I would say, like, Winnie the Pooh is, like, I don't know. They're ageless. I think they're ageless. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. And like, so this lecture, he's an animator, his very, fairly well-known animator. And his, his answer was that he's like, they're obviously adults because like, think about it. They never reference their parents. They live their own yeah. lives and like they do their own thing. So they're adults, but they're just like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's like fun for people of different ages to watch it because it's not exactly about being ageless, but you're kind of like making fun of them or you can kind of relate to them as... So it isn't a contradiction of being ageless, but it's just the concept of them being stupid is important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stupid adults. That's Winnie Pooh. I mean, Winnie Pooh, we've discussed the name before, right? It doesn't like mean anything. It's like a nickname for the bear. You mean in English. Yeah. Yeah. And then Pooh kind of means like fluffy or something. But in, in Russian, Winnie also doesn't like... It just is Winnie, but then um, Puch means, Puch is like down, like goose down. Puff, oh, puff. okay, nice. So let's just, okay, I want to move into another uh, clip so that we don't just get too stuck with Winnie. But Hitruk, I mean, in, in many senses, he, like a lot of his animations, he started working as an animator in 1937, as I said, and then he started making um, films on his own as a director in the late 50s early 60s so really late kind of late in his career um, he was in his 40s and a lot of the films that he made as a director still remain like some of the most well-known classics of Soviet animation so he's a really important figure his first film is called the story of one crime the story of a crime I think it's especially fitting for, for our format because it's the story of a man who becomes overwhelmed by all the sounds in his apartment while he's trying to sleep. And based on his, like, he spends one night trying to fall asleep with all these different things disturbing him. And based on that night, he commits a crime because oh, <laughs> wow. he's so upset. Um, <laughs> And it's actually, Hitchcock explained in his, uh, in this amazing set of books that I'm going to reference a lot, which is called Profession Animator. Specifically about this guy. Yeah, it's his, he wrote them. Oh, oh they're like autobiographical. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. 
so they're like him going through the story of his entire career and life it's like autobiographical and also like a manual for an animator okay what year did a story a story of a crime is that what it's called so the story of a crime his first film as a director was started in the late 50s but the like published date i see is 62 okay so like late thaw time yeah well yeah or actually that's like right in the in the midst of it but yeah he said it was based on his experience of like when he he was working from home at some period of his life and there were these two dvorniki who would constantly squabble during the day (laughs) and like disturb him Oh, and at the time, and still, actually, I think, um, there was a law that, like, it's forbidden to be loud. Like, you can't be loud and make noise between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m., but during the day, you can be loud and make noise. So this, like, noise law, which I think still exists, but I'm not sure the, the history of that. So anyway, he bases it on that. So... After a long day of work, the main character of this uh, movie, Vasily Vasilievich Mamin, tries to go to sleep, but his neighbors are having a party. So, yeah, as you can imagine, like, the film continues with a series of similar disturbances. And, like, the visual is that it's a split screen and you see uh, Vasily Vasilievich in his bed in the lower part of the screen and then the upper part of the screen, or in another part of the screen is, like, where the noise is coming from. Mm-hmm. And he's, and like, trying another to save apartment. all his objects from, like, the ruckus upstairs. Yeah. A little bit more about, like, the visual style of this. So, again, this is his first film as a director, and... He worked with Sergei Alimov, who we ended up working with after that, but at the time um, was just a student. And he was, like, searching for the style, basically. Um, Hitchuk was searching for the style, and then Alimov drew this main character in this kind of, like, sharp, hard, like, rigid style, and the city and stuff is also... The setting is also pretty rigid, these, like, kind of, like, floating buildings, and... He calls that, like, at the time, like, a contemporary style, but it was def- very different from other things that were being drawn. Yeah, it's it's an, and we'll get into this more later, but it's interesting looking at that because this was, like, right around the time when the animators were starting to like, kind of pull away from the Disney style a little bit, and you can see that in this. I would honestly say, like, the closest comparison I can think of, like, uh, animation quality is, like, almost... Uh, Flintstone-esque. <clears throat> hmm. But maybe like... Flintstone also is geometric, kind of? Um, yeah. A little bit... Yeah, very geometric and then, like, flat. But it, there's, like, some mix of stuff. Like, the people are, like, color- colorful and animated, but then, like, the settings are, are like, one color, kind of, which is cool-looking. I don't know if that's how it is in other scenes. Well, in, so in the... Before he goes to sleep, like, the main scene is... is the whole thing is set up as a flashback. Like he commits the crime and then it flashes back on his day mm-hmm. and he goes to work and you see the city and it's kind of like, you know, like a sort of 
dis- not exactly dystopia, but just like a big city with all the like cogs turning and all these people going and crowds and trains and like okay. just a, there's a lot of settings. So it's pretty like colorful and overwhelming. And like a lot of the focus is on sounds, um, you know, like something ringing, the typewriter clattering, and it's like not bothering him during the day. He's like used to it. Mm. Yeah. And then he like comes home. And the the other thing about the sort of style of it is that there are parts of it that are really like minimalistic. And Hitchuk and Alimov were working on like sort of a laconicism, like when he, you see that in the night scene when he's in the bed, like sometimes there's just like a couple of objects shown yeah, like a pillow and, and a blanket yeah it's like the very minimal to show what the object is and then like when they move sometimes it's the objects can kind of like I mean like in a lot like in a lot of cartoons the physics aren't unnecessarily like perfectly logical they just kind of like need to get across the idea of what's happening and then like he plays with that too like the dishes start dancing or like he was talking about in this in this film doing a scene in which he was like this is like the film in which he learned like if I need to show a person walking through a door like I can show them walking through the door and then the door can disappear because it like doesn't need to be there anymore that's cool like that kind of thing yeah this movie gets a lot of very positive attention he immediately goes on to make other ones that I that I will talk about but not gonna go fully biographical because I don't want to be boring but he did spend several years in Germany before, right before, basically, he started his career as a animator. He came back to Moscow and tried to join Sayuz Multfilm, and Sayuz Multfilm was, like, one-year-old. It, it started in 1936, and in 1937, or it was formed then. So it's, like, one-year-old, and he had seen some animations... As a kid, he remembered seeing them in Moscow like before he went to Germany. He saw some animations, but they weren't like he wasn't impressed or he wasn't into them. And then he saw a couple of Disney animations um, more as like a teenager and was very just, yeah, very interested and thought that like this was just something he was interested in doing. And so he goes and he, he's good at drawing. And that's always been something he not his like dream as a kid, but like he realized he could do it. So he goes to say his mouth film. He's like, these are my drawings or whatever. And they're like, you could like okay, do that. Shit back <laughs> yeah. But they're like, no. And then it's this like very uh, fairy tale like story. And then he tries a second time and they also said no. And then there's a contest for uh, a position as like an animator assistant or something. And, he enters the contest and like everyone's sitting there, they have to draw some, they have to do their, their assignment is to like make an animation, like sort of like a flip book, like make a series of drawings based on some fairy tale. And he does it way faster than everyone else. He like does two or something. And everyone's like carefully choosing characters. And he's like, but he thinks like nobody likes it because like the person's like, thank you. You can go now. And then later um, in November, 1937, he gets a letter from Sayuz Mold Film that says that he's been accepted as an animator intern. Oh, So that's, that's the start of his career. <laughs> yeah. And he works there for the next 50 years, like a good Soviet boy. The time in 1937 is when Soviet animation is going through, according to Hitchuk, three major changes. Um, one of them is just that all the studios that, you know, little different-sized animation studios that existed are being unified into this, you know, big animation factory that is Sayuz Moldfilm. 
Another important change is going to be technology, which we'll talk about, uh, of animation. And the third is that there's this change in thematics at this time. So prior to 1937, uh, or around then, things that were being made had this very pretty, like, clear social, political agenda. Two themes being really focused around fairy tales specifically as like the basis for a cartoon Mm -hmm. and that was like a deliberate directive from authorities like from above which was that now cartoons are going to be focused on children as the viewer and they're going to be based on fairy tales and they even at this time um can you talk about debt film so it was debt film just the that's what it was called or more about it well i mean just that a special studio was created that was like children focused and had like children in the name which ended up not lasting but yeah it lasted um, like maybe about a year but can this you, yeah but this was the what time that de- what debt means debt is debt is children yeah. so sayu's debt film is instead of mult film is like uh the union of kids movies mm-hmm. yeah so yeah so tell us more yeah so the timeline of like thematics and con or thematics and like visual aesthetics is kind of paired you mentioned how like initially Russian animation was very ideologically focused but earlier early Soviet animation was influenced a lot by like propaganda aesthetic and pamphlets and there's one particular scholar who said quote most of the early Soviet animated films came out of political manifestos and satirical vignettes um, they were they were primarily caricatures and propaganda works addressed to an adult audience. So that's important that in the initial iteration, cartoons weren't for kids. And then uh, Ivan Ivanov Vano, uh, who was one of the earlier Soviet animators, uh, also like confirmed at some point in his career that satire, political posters, and pamphlet pamphlets were of utmost important for nation nation nascent nascent uh soviet animation so you mentioned this one china and flames it kind of has this quality that you could picture like if if you picture early early soviet propaganda posters like picturing those being animated it has a similar visual quality to it starting though in the late 20s you do begin to see cartoons being starting to be targeted at children and the example of this is a movie called Senka the African. And you have to remember at this time, like these are silent. They're silent movies um, and they're in black and white. So this, the, the interesting thing about this is you start to see Russian animation draw from a lot of sources. So you mentioned like propaganda, you mentioned folk tales, um, but you also have them like drawing heavily from folk tales and fairy tales. You see them drawing heavily from like literature as well. So Senka the African was based on a story uh, by Corney, is that how you pronounce it? K O R N E Y. Corney. It's a person. Yeah, Chukovsky, um, who was a really popular uh, children's poet at the time. Corney, um, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And a, and a, actually, a lot of post-revolution animations were based on poems like Sunka the African and another called Male, which came out in 1929, which was an adaptation of a. a poem by Samuel Marshak, uh, which just tells the story of this like letter that's addressed to a writer. Uh, and the letter mm-hmm. follows the writer around the world and finally reaches him when he returns to Leningrad. And in the ni- late 1920s, they sort of begin to develop recurring characters and building g- good Soviet citizens becomes important. To- so 
maybe before you're seeing, you know, just like adoption of uh, propaganda aesthetic and maybe certain things, but now you start to see a more concerted effort to inject the ideology into these cartoons. So an example of this is a cartoon called The Samoid Boy, um, Samoid probably, uh, which came out in 1928, and he comes from a city in Siberia. And, and the film kind of openly ridicules the beliefs of this group of indigenous people and makes this boy like the model citizen because he leaves his like backwards indigenous family and moves to the big city and is like... It's not even village, it's straight up indigenous? Yeah, yep, like cool. in teepees and everything. And and he, you know, does away with his family for the bright Soviet future. And, and yeah, so just to like bring it back to what the aesthetic looks like. So the style is still very simple at this point. It's drawn animation and it's black and white. Um, and then you hit the 1930s and you start to see like the incorporation of fairy tales. And this probably comes from a mix of things, but some people credit it to uh, the desire to kind of emulate Disney. So Disney was doing this. So not only were they like... Uh, trying to mimic them in content, but also in the like form of the animation. So Disney is known for its really kind of naturalistic and round animation. And by naturalistic, I mean uh, the mannerisms and movement of the characters, which essentially just means that Disney was drawing a shit ton of frames to do like one small movement so that the movement isn't jerky. It's like really natural and flows. Um, and then obviously, you know, like what the Disney animation style looks like, that kind of roundness. The, this is the thing. During these time, this time in the 30s, like Disney's making pretty high quality animations. Um, I, I don't think Snow White came out until like the 40s, but they're making pretty yeah. high quality animations using celluloid, which is just like a material, a transparent material that they were like drawing the different characters on. And the reason that this is important is because you can have a static background and then you can write, you can draw the characters changing over time and just put this transparent right. film on top of the background. Um, the thing was that the, the celluloid that Disney was using was really high quality, meaning essentially that it was completely transparent so you could stack a lot of different layers to add complexity to the frame without um uh kind of obscuring the other layers because of the tent of the the celluloids because it was just completely clear but the soviets didn't have the best celluloid and so they really couldn't stack more than like three layers without tinting and darkening the other layers so the complexity mm -hmm. of the the cartoons by this metric were like a bit lower at this time. Yeah. So there's the Disney aspect to it, which like side note, like everybody really apparently liked Disney at this time, including Stalin. He apparently used to watch cartoons at the Kremlin um, and was particularly fond of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And classic. Yeah, classic. So Snow, Snow White, um, Disney denied this, but there's evidence that it was made using this, technique called rotoscoping which is essentially you take a like like live action video of somebody and then you project it onto a film and then you draw the cartoon over it so it's like sketching real mm -hmm. life events and this was disney was as, as as i said was like kind of obsessed with uh improving the naturalistic quality of their animation so getting like really small details about like facial expressions that would be hard to draw from memory instead you would just sketch them over what existed so there there are some like videos on the internet of 
how like the little mermaid was made and it's like real humans acting out scenes and then they got drawn over um Mm -hmm. so so you start to see in russian animation this increase of like a, a rounder uh style versus what you would have had earlier which was like this more kind of propagandistic style you're just saying propagandistic because you mean like looks like it's like avant-garde like the posters yeah. sharp lines yeah so and then one other thing i just want to say about this reincorporation of fairy tales is in the early uh like right after the revolution uh fairy tales and folklore and stuff were kind of viewed as like czarist things of the past so people weren't really oriented towards them but as the 30s progressed and they kind of saw the success of incorporating fairy tales uh, a la Disney, it started to become more popular. Um, animation kind of stagnated during the war and following the war, like Disney kind of gets lumped in with being a symbol of like Western bourgeoisie bad stuff. But you still see like a fair amount of animation that emulates a Disney style. So here's one that's a little more recent than the 30s. This is from 1956. This is called The Little Gray Neck. I don't know what the it is in Russian. Other technological advancement you start to get during this time is this thing called a multi-plane camera, which was something that was also invented at Disney, uh, which before what you would have is you would have like a static background and then you would have these uh, clear celluloid sheets that you would put on top. And Disney was like, this isn't depth, like the depth's not there. We need it to look real when we're making feature films. So they would essentially like make a vertical stack of panes that would account for the depth in any landscape so you might have like the sun be the bottom layer and it would be furthest away mm-hmm. and then you would have some hills some trees maybe the house you could move the distance that the panes were from each other to create this depth you wanted and then at the very top of the stack would be the camera okay in, in the 1960s you start to get this increasing demand for cartoons and so uh the the animation studio starts pumping out cartoons and it the th- the thing about this is it's much, e- much easier to make cartoons when they're more minimal and you're having to draw fewer frames. So they become a little bit jerkier at this time and start to kind of reject the naturalistic style that's uh, mostly associated with the Disney style. So in 1961, you have this, a good example of this, which is in a, a cartoon called Big Troubles. And the style is much more minimalistic, much more two-dimensional, and similar to uh, the story of a crime. Oh, these are like straight up like line drawings. And and during this time, you also start to see uh, the like reorientation of cartoons away from just solely being for children. Um, 
Wait, are you saying the dates? When is this? Yeah, 1960. So this was, this one was from 1961. Another pretty famous movie from this period uh, in 1962 by Mikhail Tsikhanovsky and his wife Vera. Excuse me. But Vera and Mikhail uh, <laughs> called The Wild Swans, 1962, was kind of pointed to as an interesting combination of the like classic spatial style of Disney animation. So this like depth that they were so obsessed with and flat backgrounds that imitate illustrations and books. And so you get like really static 2D minimalist backgrounds, but the characters themselves look like Disney characters. sixties is it's like kind of I mean they there's like claims that you know they've thrown off the like yoke of Disney animation or whatever, but that's clearly not true completely. But there is a lot of variation. Um starting in the thirties, Soviet animators used puppet animation, which I didn't know this, but puppet animation doesn't mean like a marionette or like Elmo, as I explained to you earlier but means like you have malleable uh little statues that you can change in minute ways from scene to scene so like claymation i feel like would go under a subheader of uh puppet animation or uh uh genna is that how you pronounce his name genna yeah genna is is a good example of uh puppet animation can i just note something about the like tech yeah Okay, what I just wanted to clarify was that, as I understood it, like, basically in 37, Soyuz Multfilm, so the Soviet Union is just starting to use the celluloid thing, which has already been used for, it had already been used for like 20 years in the States. Disney had been already doing that. And what was happening before the celluloid is that, because um, you mentioned they were drawn, but as I, what what Hitchcock says is that before the celluloid like phase, cartoons were cut out and they were like cut out shapes put on a background. Yeah, and yeah. photographed. Yeah, and you can tell that in like the ones. I mean, it makes the like propaganda. Right, it makes sense because yeah. that's what like propaganda posters looked like. Also, were cut out shapes, which is like the yes. same style for references. Something like South Park. Yeah, and it looks like, so this, like, cutout thing is what, like, black and white and some of those older choppy Mm -hmm. movies look like. And, like, on the one hand, you can say, like, oh, that's that's not, like, sort of the ideal style of classical animation that started with cellular, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, you get this really nice, like, graphic design effect from that. Yeah, I mean, and people have continued to use cutout animation, so I... I don't think, like, as soon as Cellulite came along, everybody's like, well, fuck that shit. Well, yeah, the other thing that I read was that when the Cellulite style was, like, brought over, um, there was a lot of kind of 
almost like overuse of it because suddenly like animators had all this freedom because like before when you cut out something and put it on the background it's like it's hard to do each movie yeah. and it's, it's stuck to the background and suddenly like the characters are free to move against the background right they're like disconnected and so you got a lot of like wiggly like they called it like noodle animation oh, that's funny. a lot of like wobbly <laughs> characters <laughs> like, oh <laughs> yeah, like those big blow-up guys that are in front of car dealerships yeah exactly exactly yeah. And then another big influence, like Disney wasn't the only influence. Um, also, I mean, other American animators like Max. Did you come across Max Fleischer? 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 Yeah, he's the guy that invented the rotoscope. Oh, so he's the creator of, or his studio, he and his brother created like Popeye, Betty Boop, and others. And <laughs> the, apparently Popeye, this the one that's called Popeye the Sailor meets Alibaba's 40 Thieves um, was a really important Bible of animation for Soviet animators mm. at a certain point. I just want to real quick make the note that v once we're, you know, through the, the thaw era and into the Brezhnev era starting in 64, like animations really start to skyrocket because, you know, suddenly everybody and their brother has a TV like starting in the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, yeah, and so you start to get um, an emphasis on reoccurring characters so uh, and and across the Soviet Union remember we're not just talking about Russia so like characters like Chebarashka and Winnie the Pooh and uh, well what's the like really famous tv show called that's the rabbit and the wolf I mean those are all famous but new, new Pagadi. yeah new Pagadi. there was something about it, it was like the most popular the longest running or something like that and they used to have like pop songs as background which made it very relevant to the times I guess yeah well I'll yeah I'll talk a little bit about it because it was really long running but um that's probably what it was what do you mean it, that's probably what is known about it okay so so Lily you're going to tell us more about new Pogadi, right yeah in a roundabout way <laughs> okay <laughs> okay so new Pogadi is a good example of one of the myths of Soviet cartoons according to this animator that I've now referenced a couple of times. His name is Konstantin Bronzit, and he is a student of both Hitchuk and famous animator Alexander Tatarsky. And he's, he's been an animator at Melnitsa Studio since 1991. And Melnitsa is like a, one of the bigger, very prolific animation studios. Uh, it's based in St. Petersburg. And he's a director, animator, and also a voice actor. But in any case, he gave this lecture about like the myths of Soviet animation. And the two main ones are that there was a lot of it and that it was all good. <laughs> Even that they are myths, uh, he then breaks down why they're not true. Okay. This concept that there were a lot of them. It's just like one of those things that people continue to think now people are like but there were so many good soviet cartoons especially older people you know in like a sort of like nostalgia fueled way of remembering it's like now all the cartoons are shit and there's like nothing good and there were so many good soviet ones but actually there weren't that many um especially if you compare it to the production capacity of american animation yeah and and we're talking about so disney's just one studio like there's other studios there's the max people there's I don't know. <laughs> others, I'm sure. No, there are a lot of others, but I can't think of, you know, what is it called? Like, gold, the lion. Oh, yeah, Goldman Meyer. 
Sorry. Something yeah. like that. Oscar Mayer. Oscar Mayer. <laughs> Wiener. And one example is this, it's like... A, I don't know. It's not super fair, though, to, like, compare it to America. Well, I mean, the greatest country a, on Earth. Why is it not fair? It's just, like, it's definitely fair. It's the Soviet fucking Union. It's, like, a lot of countries. So, Nupagadi, translated into English as Just You Wait, well, Just You Wait, was the first episode to release in 1968. So, it's an animated series. It's the very popular, classic Soviet animation that people know and reference still. And just to give you an idea of numbers, it ran for 17 years. Nice. I guess that's the like record that it broke or whatever. But it only had 16... Okay, this guy said series. That can't possibly be episodes, right? No, it must mean seasons, right? I mean, I think it is episodes. That seems... So they did one a year, basically? Yeah. There's like one a year. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. And not even always one a year. Okay. All right. Myth busted. Yeah. So that's crazy, right? So in, in, in the span, it's for some reason, like one episode comes out a year and then what, like the same episode plays every like Saturday or something. I'm not sure how that worked. You get one episode a year, people. And you're yeah, going to really- love it. <laughs> and then like, as a comparison, he compares... Tom and Jerry, which started earlier. Which is a similar setup, like two Similar rascals, setup, because Nupagadi is like a wolf yeah. and a bunny and Tom and Jerry, you know? Tom and Jerry is a cat and a mouse. Really? Mm-hmm. Tom and Jerry, the, the first 17 years, so it started in the 40s, and the first 17 years, can you guess how many episodes there were? I don't know, probably like 550 about. Okay. Maybe there weren't one a week. According to this guy, there were 116, which isn't even that many. Okay. But let's take his word for it. That's like 10 a year. Yeah, so it's more like once a month. Or, or things were done in seasons, except in the new Pogadi case where it was just done once a year. <laughs> one season a year, which is also an episode. <laughs> so yeah, so that just gives you an idea of like the volume mm-hmm. difference. And then you also have things like Sayu's malt film was doing something like 10 to 15 films in general so a collection of that could be short ones or more long form ones cartoons Mm -hmm. and like for full-length films during the entire period there's only 13 full-length animated films during the entire soviet soyuz mold film time which is very little as you might imagine disney Disney alone, so again, like not counting all the other animators in the states, um, right? And that's that's important like, in this case. Remember, there aren't any other like private studios making animations in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that yeah. So Sayuz is like has combined everyone, and it's still generating very little. And then Disney made like fifty or sixty during that period. Mm-hmm. I I wonder though, like a huge part of that is probably like a lot of the, according to Wiki, I think I got this from Wikipedia, like a lot of the animators went to war, and I think like like something like 19 of them didn't make it back or something. So they, and it was a small group to begin with. So they really got like that World War II really did them in, I think. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of industries, that's the case. I don't, yeah. So the reasons behind that is like a whole separate topic, but, but so, so what does that do? That first of all means that kids also in the Soviet Union aren't watching American animation at least not like on a mass level. So they're like really restricted to what they're watching. First of all, that just makes it so that everyone knows those cartoons really fucking well. <laughs> right, every Saturday over morning and over again. again. And again. 
<laughs> they watched them over and over again and they didn't have other options. Yeah, wait, isn't also isn't even like, oh, yeah, I guess you're going to talk about it, but like the Chevroshka stuff, weren't there only like three? Yeah. Yeah, that's so crazy that there could be such like an intense emotional connection to these characters and you've seen like maybe 30 minutes of them interacting. Yeah, and then the other the other myth about like not all of them being good is just like I I don't want to spend they all are good, so I believe here's a list of all the ones we hate. <laughs> I don't really want to like trash. Yeah, get too much into that. But this this animator was basically saying like people, you know, when they list uh, Soviet cartoons, they're like listing like Winnie Pooh, like Jozef Tumanie, Kurt Leopold, which is Leopold the cat, and the Bremen musicians that you referenced. Mm-hmm. And he's like, it just like hurts him that all of those are in the same breath because they're like, they're, they're on totally different levels. Like Jozef Tumania is like on a much higher level than something like Kot Leopold. And same with Winnie the Pooh. And then he breaks down sort of like what basically makes the work of Hitruk specifically, who we've now talked about a lot, and um, Narstein, who did Jozef Tumania, which we will talk about, as to why they like, what they do is so much more um, developed psychologically and is like an actually good film rather than just being like characters like singing and thinking that like kids will like it because they sing or like bashing each other over the heads yeah and he just basically accuses some a lot of soviet animation or not a lot of it but some of it of being like doesn't have any genre and it's just like colors yeah and he's like that's not fair to kids like you're acting like they're idiots and they just they just like are entertained by that but actually they're not before we talk about hedgehog in the fog i want to talk briefly about chiparashka back to chiparashka remember the song at the beginning no yes i remember him <laughs> yay I love him. so <laughs> so amongst the good quality uh, soviet cartoons are the is the cartoon series that's like called Crocodile Gena that features the character Chebarashka, who's some kind of a creature. <laughs> yeah, on, like a on little there. bear with a bear face. A bear, be, a bear with a bear, a bear face. with a b a r e face. Kind yeah, of like a non-hairy yeah. face. And that's Soyuz Malt Films uh, production from 1969, based on the book by Edward Uspiansky, which was published in 1966. It was an illustrated book. Yeah. Suspensky. and it, but this the characters enter mass culture and become these like important figures that are then produced in all sorts of like you know toys and images and everything um, after the cartoon comes out but as you said it's like just three of them enough for the entire century <laughs> well i feel like there's maybe only one there's three winnie the poos no no i think that there's three because there's the birthday day and then there's some other ones I didn't watch. Oh, maybe I just watched them all together. Yeah. But in any case, yeah, I think technically the film is targeted towards kids more, but it's, in my opinion, enjoyable for all ages. <laughs> yep. Because Chebby is so cute. Oh my God. Unbearably cute. There's this scene in, in the birthday one after he sings the song and then like later they're building this little... Um, playground for the little kids um and after they're done playing the building the playground it just like comes back to a shot and uh gana is playing the accordion again and chevaroshka is just dancing a little bit it's so cute yeah just like having a nice time together (laughs) okay so this is this is like one of my favorite lines from chevaroshka gana Mm -hmm. 
Ну, как тебе сказать, чебурашка? Очень тяжело. Слушай, Гена, давай я вещи понесу, а ты возьми меня. Это ты здорово придумал. So Gena and Chavrashka are standing on this train track and there's a pile of stuff and Chavrashka says, Gena, is it really hard, is it really heavy, like is it really hard for you to carry all that stuff? And Gena goes, well, you know, Chavrashka, yes, it is very heavy. And Chavrashka says, listen, Gena, I have an idea. How about I carry the stuff and you carry me? <laughs> this is a he ain't heavy, he's my brother situation. Yeah, it's like really cute. Okay, so I want to come back to so a film that's also from our dear Hitruk that is now being like for some reason um, now being marketed or on YouTube it just says like in the title that it's a film for adults, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure that was the case when it was released. But it's from 1968. I think it's his third. It's called Film, Film, Film. Mm -hmm first of all, and it's the story of making a movie. Oh, cool. So it's like a short cartoon about all the difficulties and obstacles that the various people who participate in making a movie meet along the way um, during the process. He said that this was his most difficult film to make okay. for whatever reason. But yeah, he kind of also says it's like autobiograph autobiographical based on like his experience, you know, going through all of the different processes of like making something and then getting it you know um, approved what's the word like approved but there's lots of steps because like somebody might say like oh you have to shorten this or do that so there's like it's a it's a back so and forth it's not like a one time he's thing. saying that it was the most difficult because the approval process was so arduous or arduous or because technically no. it was difficult technically like emotionally psychologically Okay, so that was like one of the only places in the movie that there's pseudo voices. Mm -hmm. Those like blah, 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 like nonsense voices. Wait, what's a cartoon that does that? Uh, the Peanuts. Yeah. Wah, 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 wah. And <laughs> yeah, and like this in this like the opening scene in the beginning is all about um, the different steps. Like first the screenwriter and then the like director taking it and like gesturing to him that it's not good and then he redoes it and then like they, a, an arm reaches out and says like uh cut it or something like that and then they like shorten it it kind of is just like you know exposing the process in which censorship takes place which can happen on different levels so you know it can be like something like shorten it it can be a full like refusal to release a film at like some some stage of, of the idea mm -hmm. or development Um, or it can be 
self-censorship. But like even in Hitruk's case, so Hitruk is, we know who he is, right? He's the Winnie the Pooh guy. Yeah, we, very we know. important we guy. Know. <laughs> Just making sure. And so he has an experience with, sorry, let me say that again. He tells a story of a case of self-censorship in his, um, in his experience as a director, which was when he was planning his second film um, after the crime one. He wanted to base it on a screenplay from Vladimir Galavanov called The Death of a Passenger. And he said it was like kind of a continuation of the ideas of the crime one he did, but it was more like absurd, theater of the absurd. He ended up like withdrawing it during artistic council, which I guess is like an earlier phase of consulting. Okay. Not because somebody said like, you know, no, we're not going to do this. But he had like doubts. He knew sort of like this theater of the absurd might not be uh, suitable. Super, yeah, like might not be super accepted by by the bigwigs. In his case, it was like two very sort of important uh, artists. One of them is Yutkevich, Sergei Yutkevich, who's a director and screenwriter, and the other is Boris Sefimov, who's a political cartoonist. And I guess on the level of the Artistic Council, they saw the idea and they advised him not to do it, advised him. Mm -hmm like in an informal way, in his own interest, like for his own sake or whatever. And he took their advice and he really regrets that moment and considers that to be like a sort of self-flagellation or a, he just, he, or like cowardly. Wait, what year was part. that again? Remind me. 60, like two or something. Okay. 63. Okay. Yeah. And so that, that's a, that's like a, I think a common occurrence. It's just like a specific example of how that works. You know, there's some informal, there's maybe some advice, there's some inner feeling like, oh, this wouldn't be like, and then you end up not doing it yourself. There is an example though of a important animator, um, the work of an important animator actually being like directly censored. And that is a movie called The Glass Harmonica from 1968, a little bit later. And the director is Andrei Kirjanovsky. Kirjanovsky, yeah. it's a hard name. I didn't watch the whole thing. You Did you watch I the did, thing? yeah. Okay, it's like very beautiful. It's very beautiful. It um, recreates a lot of characters from like, I don't know what art, art but I don't know what era. Like the one of the ones that's most recognizable is, who uh, was it Magritte who painted the guy with the apple on top of his head? Oh, yeah, and the bowler yeah. hat. So that, like, full, full people recreated, but in this, like, dystopian world where everybody, like, has bow bows down before the, like, golden icon of money. Um, mm -hmm. the, the reason that I found in English, and maybe you found... Well, actually, go ahead. What, what's the reason given in Russian for why it was censored? I didn't... No, I, I didn't find, like, an exact reason. I just found that it was, like, the film society or whatever the union wanted it to be more clear that it was anti-capitalist the bourgeoisie yeah yeah that like the group of people so what happens is like they're worshiping money but they also turn into like monsters or something right? yeah the people they turn in yeah they're worshiping money and then it's there's like three central characters like there's the the people um then there's the man with the bowler cap who's like printed on all the money there's like images of golden coins and then there's a guy with the the glass harmonica that has like a bit of a messiah messianic presence messianic yeah. yeah um and and yeah the majority of the film is like the public like going crazy over these coins and like it's paired with really um 
Uh, what's the word for when something's like intentionally uh, sounds bad? Dissonance? Dissonance, yeah, dissonance. Like the audio is really, at times it's like a orchestral, really frantic. Um, and the images are also really frantic. And this is not the reason that it was censored. But there's also, did you get to the scene with the Jew? Oh my God. No. Oh my God. Well, you have to go back and watch it. It's this like really intense scene where like everybody else is turning into animals. And this one guy turns into a Jew with like a giant ass nose. And he's like, like he's obviously he's a Jew. Yes. It's like that really, um, I don't know where it came from, but it's that image of a Jew that's like recreated until now. It's like the same exact face basically. Um, and he's like swimming in golden coins and like throwing coins everywhere. And like, it should have been the reason it was. I know it's really crazy. It was like a little too late to have that imagery. It was like 68. Did you say? Yeah. Yeah. No, too late to have that kind of imagery. And then in the end, so in the beginning, you have the guy with the glass harmonica and he comes and he gets like stamped out by the bourgeoisie. And then at the end, he comes back with the glass harmonica and like all the chaos is righted and like everybody returns to the original form and the like Jewish guy goes back to not being Jewish or something. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I just skipped through, but I missed that transformation. Honestly, I was a little surprised that it do- it just seems like it is pretty anti-capitalist the way the way you described it so I'm I don't really get like what the problem was but I guess yeah the the issue was that like society needed it to be, needed to be more clear that the the people who were worshiping money were bourgeoisie and then like they tried to do that the authors of the cartoon like agreed but then it was like still not shown yeah like the, the intro says like this is about the bourgeoisie but there's something about yeah well, that's what they added yeah there's something about um the the houses that they live in feel very like pleb like uh, and then the other thing is the the reason that was given in english so who knows is that like the relationship between the bowler hat man the the like yeah. icon and the harmonica player seems like some sort of uh commentary on bureaucracy that they didn't like oh, okay because like in the russian wikipedia there was something about the bowler hat also but it didn't explain why it was just like it was assumed the image of the man in the bowler hat like caused particular discontent yeah and it, that's the character from marguerite marguerite painting mm-hmm. yeah. um okay so oh. best for last what oh. 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 so someone oh. we've referenced now several times is the lovely wonderful yuri norstein norstein in english he i mean he he made several beautiful films but he's like best known for making Hedgehog in the Fog, which was released in 1975. Did you read about his technique? Mm-mm. Okay, so I this is the only thing I read about it, was that he used multiple panes of glass um, to give the animation a more three-dimensional look. And I guess he's painting on glass, so it's like a more watercolor-y, almost. Yeah, it does look or like paint, It looks like more painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the camera's place on top like looking down on the glass glass panes so that's like multi-pane that multi-pane camera thing that disney invented essentially yeah okay this does not look like a disney film (laughs) no this like it looks like a combination to me of like painting and cut out both of those things Mm -hmm. somehow but how would you describe this style like fairy tale mystical yeah it has has a bit of like a waldorf-esque thing going on okay definitely like really beautiful almost like again painterly details 
um, especially in the background, something that, you know, you definitely don't always see in cartoons when they can be just like pretty flat mm -hmm. scenes and backgrounds. But here, you know, you see like the blades of grass and like it's called Hedgehog in the Fog. There's a lot of beautiful like fog imagery. Beautiful fog imagery. Like the way the fog moves and then like different creatures come in and out of the fog. And it's all of these sort of full length ones are only maybe 20 minutes long or yeah. 10 minutes long. So these are all really worth watching and aren't that long. And especially with this one, people are always spouting off about how this is like the best animated film of all time. So. Yeah. Although there really are other things he did that are just like also amazing. Okay. Can so. we watch them? Mm-hmm. which means hedgehog. He runs into the fog. He's in the river. I'm in the river. Let the water carry me along, decided the hedgehog. He sighed deeply and began to float down with the current. I'm totally soaked. I'll drown soon. <laughs> Suddenly, someone touched his paw. Excuse me, said someone quietly. Who are you and how did you get here? I'm a hedgehog. I fell in the river. Then get on my back. I'll carry you to shore. Don't mention it, said that someone. <laughs> okay, then a, a, fuck, a bear appears and is like, Yozhek, where have you been? I called a call. I already got the samovar going, and I even put out two chairs together so it would be comfortable for counting the stars. And then I thought, soon he'll be here and he'll sit down. And we'll drink tea and eat raspberry jam. You did bring the raspberry jam with you, right? Oh, and did I... Fuck, I'm too slow. Oh, and did I tell you about the samovar? <laughs> Juniper twigs, that nice smoky smell, and uh, and also because, because, oh, who other than you knows how to count the stars? The bear cub talked and talked, and the hedgehog thought, isn't it wonderful that we are together again? <laughs> he looks so scared. <laughs> now he's having a flashback of his fog tears, and also he thought about the horse. How is she there in the fog? Oh, I love. Sorry, I ruined your last line. I didn't ruin it, but no, no, you're I interrupted. Fine. No, 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 you're fine. It's so cute because he's like, and also he thought about the horse. And I love that. <laughs> Yoshik, I have the samovar already. I love how the bear's like out of breath. She's like, where have you been? You brought the jam, right? <laughs> Okay, 
All right, that is the episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, we are going to put a link to a playlist on YouTube of all the cartoons that we've referenced, plus some that we haven't referenced, uh, including some Estonian ones. Uh, so check that out. As always, be sure to subscribe and follow us at She's in Russia. Support us on patreon.com slash She's in Russia. Be sure to sign up, sign up to our monthly image-based newsletter. We've been doing a little bit of text in the past several um, from from listeners who want to write on a given topic. So if you would like to write about something in particular, it has to be related to the episodes that we've done that month. But if you're interested in contributing like 250 words to the newsletter, hit us up at uh, She's in Russia at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week. Пока. Ну зачем же этот день кончается? Пусть бы он тянулся целый год. Скатертью, скатертью дальний путь стелится и упирается прямо в небосклон. Каждому, каждому лучшее верится. Катится, катится голубой вагон. Каждому, каждому в лучшее верится, Катится, катится голубой вагон.